Till I'm tiptoed you. Dot com. The podcast about pop culture, black history, and spirituality. Yeah. It's about to be a great vibe. Dr. Tip. Gonna take it away. Till I'm tiptoed you. Oh, hey, it's your girl Tip. Thank you for joining me for another edition of Tell Em Tip Told You, the podcast where I give you my musings about all things black history, black culture, and black spirituality. I hope y'all had a wonderful Juneteenth. I'm going to spend just a little time talking about, you know, some brouhaha I saw about the holiday. Um, so we'll, we'll just spend a few minutes on that. I don't really want to go too deeply into that. I want to spend a lot more time looking about looking at um, how you see what you look for. I'll tell you what that means in just a second. And then I want to talk about this TikTok thing that just happened <laughs> that I think is hilarious. And then I want to tell you about an experience I had this weekend. So you ready? Let's jump right in. So, yeah, Juneteenth was this past weekend and I had a ball as usual. Um you know my thoughts on this, right? The federal holiday thing don't make or break anything we do as a people. We've never waited for the government to tell us what to celebrate and why, okay? This is no different. Juneteenth is an old holiday. It may be new to some of us, and that's cool. We know why it's new to you. You know, the system keeps information from us. Um, but it's an old holiday and, and the federal government finally recognizing it, which is symbolic only and problematic, (laughs) extremely problematic. Maybe I'll, I'll blog about that this week. It's extremely problematic, but, um, you know, I saw, I saw a meme or two about not celebrating because the government gave it to us. Listen, you can't be knocked off your square that easily. This is something your people have been doing. All right. It's in celebration of your people. Don't don't let the game they're trying to play distract you from your ancestral traditions. Like that's why we in the boat we're in right now, because they've distracted us from our way of being. Don't let them do that. We are a joyful people. We are a celebratory people. We love to memorialize things. This is true across time and space. Juneteenth is no different than any of our other holidays. Don't let it go the day the way of Decoration Day, where we no longer think about it. Let's let's leave Juneteenth as it is a beautiful black holiday. Don't let them commercialize it. They're trying to. I, I was so amazed at how fast it's become commercial. Right. You know, everybody selling T-shirts and even Macy's has some HBCU T-shirts at the front door. I mean, y'all, come on. If it's not clear to you what they value in you, you're not paying attention. All they care about is your money. Don't let them turn this holiday into something else. It's a day where we mark freedom, period. I don't even want to get into that whole, I'll do it on the blog, but right now, I'm not even getting into that whole, all of us weren't free, they knew they were supposed to be free. But listen, yes, all of those details do matter. But for me, what matters most is that we think about freedom. It's time to imagine freedom. Like 
it's Sankofa, right? It's not only the backward facing glance that says what happened on June 19th, 1865. It's backward facing, but also, can you imagine either way it goes, right? Either way it goes, either I knew I was supposed to be free or I didn't know yet. And the Union Army comes to tell me either way I have I get to experience something new. Can you imagine if someone came today to you and said, whatever limitation you perceive of in your life right now, what if somebody came and said, it's gone? It's completely gone. What do you do then? What do you do next? How do you honor yourself? How do you honor that newfound freedom? Like that's to me what the holiday should mark is a reimagining of our lives individually and collectively, like what does freedom look like for African people right now in 2021? What does freedom look like for us? How can we manifest freedom for ourselves? And reflecting on the work that is in our own box to do. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going there later in the podcast. But but I do want to say that I think that's that should be a, at least weekly, if not daily. Reflection. What have I done this week? to ensure my people's freedoms? What have I done this week to ensure my people's freedom? I I really believe that if more of us had that purposeful reflection and then we worked to make sure we're doing the things, I think we'd be better off. But I just, I couldn't go without saying happy Juneteenth. Um, So yeah, there's that. Now, I want to talk about something I saw on Twitter a few minutes ago. It was a Father's Day post. It was a black male educator. And he said, um, you know, when, when I became a teacher, I realized that I'm the only father figure most of my students have. And I almost threw my phone across the room. When did you start believing the most negative things about your people? The, the statistics show that that's not true. Okay. Black fathers are involved by and large at relatively good rates. <laughs> okay. So that that myth of the black father being missing, don't 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 believe that. Y'all don't believe that. But here's a black teacher. I was trying to I went to his Twitter. I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time because then it becomes a distraction to my work, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But I I um I wanted to know if he was educated at a PWI or an HBCU. The sad thing is at this point it almost doesn't matter. But the deficit perspective that we take sometimes is a problem. Like white saviorism, I'm realizing, is not the sole property of whiteness. It's a whole lot of black people who have been trained in such a way that we look, we expect pathology in black communities and we operate from that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about we often see what we look for. Right. We see what we look for. This this man, I don't know if he's a boy, y'all. I don't know this man. Uh, this man has heard probably most of his life that black fathers are absent. Right? It's in the movies. It's, you know, if you go to certain teacher ed programs, that becomes part of, you know, the whole Ruby Payne foolishness um, where we're convinced that there is inherent pathology in the black family structure which is not supported by the research, by the way. The research says what matters more than your father being in the home is your mother's educational attainment level. Now, that's interesting. We almost never talk about that. 
But what I'm saying is if you go into a situation looking for a problem, you're going to find one. Right. I think about the old people telling me when I was a little girl, if you go looking for something, you're going to find it. So if you think that black family structure is pathological, every analysis you make of black family is going to demonstrate that pathology because that's what you're looking for. Right. Um, It's it's let me give you an example of what happened this morning. Grades were due. I'm teaching summer school grades. Midterm grades were due. This morning by nine o'clock. All right. Last night, I'm a procrastinator with them grades. Last night, I was trying to put the grades in at like nine o'clock and I couldn't get into the system. This is an ongoing issue. It always happens when when it must be system overload because it never happens to me like on a regular day when I'm doing things in the system. It only happens when I'm trying to put grades in before a deadline when other people must be rushing. And so I couldn't get into the system. I, you know, I, I tried two or three browsers because I use a Mac. So I'm on a Safari. I tried Chrome. Um, I cleared my cookies, cleared my history, all, you know, all this stuff. Couldn't get into the system, took screenshots. So in the IT ticket, you know, I also CYA. So I emailed my supervisors and said, hey, you know, my grades might be late. Here's the problem, you know, so on and so forth. Always CYA. I just had to say that. But anyway, <laughs> I um, so I put in the trouble ticket and I made sure I attached screenshots to the trouble ticket because it, in the past, all they ever tell me is clear your history, clear your browser. It never works anyway. So I put the the screenshots, filed the ticket, put in the ticket that I had done these steps. So the email I get back from IT this morning, y'all guess what it said? Have you tried closing your browser and reopening it? I'm black. The first thing we do when things don't work is turn it off and turn it back on. Why would you think I didn't try that? And then I thought to myself, he, this person did not read my ticket. Because if you had read my ticket, the very first line said, I've done this, this, and this. If you had looked at the pictures, the screenshots in my ticket, you would have seen I did this, this, and this. But what happened was he was looking for, the expectation was, Professors don't know how to use technology, so she must have not even tried to close the browser window and reopen it. Right. All that this person saw was what they expected to see and responded based on not what is, but what they perceived the situation to be. How many of us do that, that we go into something looking for a situation and we get a little thing that could point to that situation and then we run at it so this black teacher you know he hears people telling him all the time black fathers are absent and he he's run with that and now not only has he run with it he becomes part of the narrative because now you are on social media reaffirming this this negative narrative about black family structure it's dangerous y'all to jump jump to conclusions Right. Even in research, I remember um, I was defending my dissertation and someone asked me, well, what are the literacy rates that caused you? I knew what they were trying to say. They were too diplomatic to actually say it outright. But they were like, what are the literacy rates that caused you to look for a quote unquote fix? And I was like, oh, well, you know, no, 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 no. I'm not looking for a fix. I'm looking to document 
right? This tendency that black people have to write in community, right? I'm not looking for anything to fix because I don't know that there is anything to fix, right? I'm not going to enter my research thinking there is a problem because if you think there is a problem when you enter a community, when you enter a data set, that's exactly what you're going to find. You find what you look for. Now, let me try to bring this full circle for you. This is what's happening with this critical race theory foolishness. All right. Before I even get into that, let me just say this one thing. These anti-critical race theory people are not anti-critical race theory because they don't even know what it is. So critical race theory has become a dog whistle for something else. So let's I, I am glad that we are sharing information about the framework with others and that I saw somebody today talking about um, doing a reading group on critical. I, those are wonderful things, but let's not act like critical race theory ain't ne- damn near 30 years old, right? This is not something new and it's only being a dog whistle um, for other people. They're not worried about critical race theory. What they don't want to happen is for you to document and teach the patterns of their behavior across time and space. That's what they don't want to happen, all right? And to be able to examine social and power structures and how they affect the lives of the average person. That's what they don't want to happen. Now, critical race theory does allow one to do it, but you don't need critical race theory to do those things, all right? So let's just start with there. I'm going to drop the term critical race theory because that's not even what they're talking about. They're talking about just knowing history, (laughs) But let me say this. The problem is, and this is what Karenga, Ma'olana Karenga talked about this when he was proposing that we began a field, begin a field called whiteness studies, like black studies, that he said we needed white studies because we needed to understand, you know, Francis Cress Welsing and others wrote about how um, white supremacy does not only affect its victims, it also affects white people who are also its victims, right? So white supremacy is dangerous for everybody. Let's put that on the table. It's dangerous for everybody. Toni Morrison once said that, you know, if you're only tall because you make somebody else get on their knees, then you have a problem. This is what white supremacy does to some white people, right? It makes them think that they are inherently entitled to a position of domination. And if the people that they are dominating begin to stand up and they realize they're not as quote unquote excellent as the myth of white supremacy has taught them, then they feel like they're being attacked. They're looking for an opportunity to be a victim. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for this problem. And that Because they're looking for that, that's what they're interpreting this thing to be. They're looking for something to affirm that it's not natural for these people to to critique me. They must it must be something wrong if they're critiquing me. Because how dare they? Right? There is a pathology in that because they're looking for an excuse. That's why you don't score Dominique Biles as high as you should when she does moves that nobody in the world can replicate. Rather than saying, oh, this girl is more excellent than any other athlete we've ever seen in the gym. You're looking for a pathology in saying, oh, oh, the the move is too dangerous. We won't score it. I can't remember the sister's name who used to ice skate, who used to do the flip. That's the same thing they did to her. It's not. 
uh, it's an unwillingness to recognize that there may be some people in the world better than you. Right? My my father, when I was growing up, used to say, it's always somebody bigger and better than you. Because, you know, y'all know I got a little mouth. So if somebody, you know, rubs me the wrong way, I don't mind getting in their face and, you know. And he used to always say, you got to be careful with that because it's always somebody better than you. People around you right now might be scared, but one day you're going to run up on the wrong one. Right. And I think these people, um, some of these people for so white people for so long have believed in the myth of meritocracy. You know, the idea that I am in the position I'm in because I'm better than the people I'm over that myth. Right. Um, Because so many, they have allowed themselves to be lulled into this learned superiority through the myth of meritocracy, that now that that myth is being exposed as a myth, it feels uncomfortable. They're looking for a problem rather than saying, okay, well, what's really going on right now? And reflecting on it, they're saying, no, 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 no. It's got to be a problem here because they're looking for a problem. That's what's happening with this thing. And they're using critical race theory as the dog whistle. But what's happening is there are so many people waking up. Like, that's the beauty of Juneteenth. Like, there is, again, it's problematic that the U.S. government has made it a federal holiday. I will blog about it at www.tellemtoldyou.com. But they had to do that because there is a general reawakening happening among black folk. I saw more black people posting about Juneteenth than I ever have in my life, ever in my life. Just like I saw more people posting about Memorial Day, really called Decoration Day, this year than ever before in my life. We're sharing historical information in new ways. We're starting to look more like the the 60s and 70s than we have since the 60s and 70s in terms of wanting to celebrate oneself, learning to see the beauty in oneself, understanding the power and the connection of the diaspora. You know, all these things are happening and some people, white people, are looking at it as a problem because that's the only way they see us. They only see us as a problem. Now, Let me tell you what Toni Morrison said, that she said that racism was a distraction for her work. We can't be distracted by their foolishness. Let them look for the problem. Let them look for the problem. Don't you look with them. (laughs) You already know it's not a problem. We already know critical race theory is not being taught in public schools. Don't listen. That's a distraction for you while they're arguing about critical race theory, social emotional learning, culturally relevant pedagogy and all this. Let them let them look for that problem. Guess what I'm going to do? Teach my ass off. I'm still going to teach. I'm still going to teach the truth. And you won't distract me. Now I want to learn even more about traditional ways of educating our children. Now I want to write even more about traditional ways of educating our children. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't let that thing, them looking for a problem, because we know if they look for a problem, they're going to manufacture the problem. That's what's happening. They're manufacturing a problem that doesn't exist. That's the only way they can feel whole. Don't be distracted by that. Your job, 
Most of us are not licensed clinical therapists. Our job ain't to help them through that foolishness. Our job is to do for people. Okay? All right. So that's what I wanted to say. Now, it's tied to this whole thing on TikTok. Y'all, so Meg has a song, you know, Hands on My Knees. I don't know the song. Y'all don't want to talk about it. If you're on TikTok, go look for that sound. What is hilarious is when the sound first got on TikTok, the black creators did not make a dance for it. And it, the running joke was, look, these white creators can't figure out what to do to the song because there are no black creators to mimic. And for, I think it was like a day or two, black creators kind of <laughs> in mass pulled back and just watched and laughed at the lack of creativity to create a, a, you know, a dance, a TikTok to this song. And it was funny. Now, two things happened. Um, white people, in, in, in spite of not having something to mimic, tried to create their own, which were hilarious. If you go through the sound far back enough and you'll see just... Even though the, the chorus is telling you hands on my knee, child, their hands in the air, the, the hands on the, the their waist, just anywhere but on their knees. It's hilarious, right? The lack of creativity. And two things happen, though. One is that, that, that we see what happens when there is no black culture to consume. There's nothing left. This is why they got to keep you distracted so that you don't realize, oh, if I take my ball and go home, ain't no more game. White supremacy depends on the cultures of the people it has marginalized. It depends. Listen. Oh, my God. I'm, mm. You understand what I'm saying? That is a beautiful. Y'all just go look at TikTok. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's a beautiful lesson. Now, here's the second thing that happened that was slightly disturbing. So black creators, by and large, decided we're not going to make anything. We're just going to, this is a laughable moment right now. Let's look and really watch what's happening. And I think it was a wake up call to a lot of these Gen Zers, right? Because they, they haven't lived through, or they are living through explicit racism, much in ways that uh, millennials did not. But it became a very in-your-face example of what they do to our culture. You know, consume it and then don't like the people that create it. Um, <laughs> but these, you know, two or three black creators went on and made the song because they saw this as an opportunity to blow up their numbers. Like, if, if nobody else is creating dances and I create one, everybody's going to flock to my dance. Right? This is the problem, right? It, oh, my gosh. It's a... It's, it's, I'm I'm rambling, so obviously I'm going to talk about that some next week because I, I'm still formulating ideas. But there is something about selling your people out, like ruining, quote unquote, the joke of this thing for personal gain. Right. By and large, black creators were able to say, OK, here here we can make a real statement here by just showing what happens if we are removed from the creative process. But some black people weren't willing to be removed from the process because they saw clout, number chasing as more important. Yeah, so I'll, I'll unpack that another day. I got to still do that. I got to tell y'all about what happened this starting Thursday. And I, I don't I'm not giving any details because for me, it was a sacred space and I don't want to give any details. But I will say that I am thankful for elders. I am so thankful to be in spaces where elders are intentional 
about protecting us and our cultural traditions. There's nothing like that in the world, y'all, where people call you sister and mama and auntie and elder so-and-so, and it's not performance. This is you are my sister type sistering. Y'all, it ain't nothing like that in the world. It's nothing like that in the world. And it's nothing like being in a setting like that where other people are interested in protecting the people and the culture and the community, sharing your work. Sharing your work. Y'all, you got to find your people. Here's what I mean. I've told parts of the story before. Let me let me say now that my background is black studies. Like even at FAM, when I was a public relations major, I took a lot of psychology, which is why I got a psych degree now. Right. So I took a lot of psychology courses. Um, And at FAMU under Dr. Cambon, this is primarily it was called psychology, but it was African psychology courses. I was steeped in black studies in the 90s all right and then when I dropped out of school and came back to school I minored in African world studies and I worked in the African world studies institute as a student research assistant and then my master's degree is in you know African diaspora studies which is you know an extension of black studies so I have this this background and when I'm when I was in these places I was allowed to explore my work in a way that connected education, psychology, and culture in a, in a very com- complex, complicated way. Now, by the time I was working on my master's degree, though, something started to happen because at FIU at the time, and someone, if you know anything about FIU, tell me if this has changed, but FIU at the time, even though you had a thesis committee, the provost had to approve your proposal. Even in, in, in my case, I think he was a chemist. And I'm writing about African literacies. Like he had no business critiquing my thesis and definitely not making a call above and beyond the heads of my committee who did know the content. Right. So that was the first point. His response, and I'll never forget it. His response was, what, what does this have anything to do with gang signs? And I was so offended. I was writing about Adinkra, um, which is a metasyllabic um, literacy system from the Akan people of Ghana and Southern Cote d'Ivoire, right? What the hell does that have to do with gangs? Like the fact that he wrote, he wrote that on my proposal. Um, it started something in me, which was how can I help make sense of this? Now, remember, Toni Morrison says racism is a distraction for your work. I started to look for how to. I don't know what word to use, but I'm going to use this one because this is what it feels like. Water down my work so it could be more easily understood by mainstream academia. And that's what I did. I started to water it down. Now, in the watering down, this is what happens when your identity and your work are so closely related. Now, some of you may remember that I had a reading one time and Shango told me that my academic work, my professional work and my spiritual work were the same thing. All right. When you take a, a, a life work like that, a purpose work, 
and you start to water it down, what you're really doing is shaving off parts of yourself and you're not allowing yourself to be fully you. And in when you're not being fully you, you can't fully do the work. So that started at FIU, right? It was no fault of my committee. My committee was hella supportive. In fact, if you find copies of my thesis, I was able to open it with a dream because that's how the, the study came to me. Spirit gave it to me in a dream. So the, the thesis actually has an opening section that is the dream to tell my reader, this is how I came to this work. Right. So I had an incredibly important supportive committee. I had a people. Right. I had a people there. Then when I got to Emory. At first, I was like, OK, well, let me study something that. You know. I can make more sense of for other people. But the, my passion didn't leave the project. My passion didn't. So my, my OK, so at Emory, you had to have a qualifying study to be able to do your dissertation study. And what smart people did was to make the qualifying study basically a trial of the bigger study. I, I did what well, I had planned to. But my trial study ended up being about First African Baptist Church, which is the first black um, congregation in the United States settled in Savannah, built a church during uh, the period of enslavement and their African um, writings throughout the church. And that's what my trial study was on. It was a watering down. Right. I wanted to go farther than that. My committee probably would have allowed me to go farther than that, further than that. I'm sorry. But I I didn't feel like myself. Now, now I'm saying to you that I was allowed to go really far in this. In fact, my dissertation was about literacies and traditional African religions. So I was allowed flexibility. I had someone from religious studies on my on my committee. I had Shuja on on my committee for the black studies part. You know, I had Siddle Walker for the educational history part. I had Maisha Wynn for the literacy part. I had some people, right, who were content experts in their fields, which related to mine. And they allowed me the flexibility to have this interstitial study that kind of existed in the middle of all these different other things. Right. And I felt relatively free to write about what I wanted to write about. But I was always aware of the ways in which what I was writing was not readily accessible to people who look for problems. You see how I made that full circle right there. Y'all ought to be proud of me. Um, and so fast forward, I, I am now in a job where I don't have a people. I'm not saying that I don't have a people. I'm saying where I am, I have no people. Geographically, where I am, I have no people. And because of some flaws that I have, let me say flaws I have, I'm not blaming anybody, flaws I have in reaching out to my people. Rather than doing my work, I started doing what seemed more education based, more accessible to educators more accessible to people around me, um, easier for me because I, di I didn't necessarily have access to my people to do the kind of work I needed to do. 
I didn't necessarily, I still don't necessarily have access to, um, and thank you for the, you know who you are reaching out and saying, I can send you some articles. Um, and I allowed that environment to cause me to water down even more. And so I, and here's what happens when you allow yourself to be watered down. You can't necessarily readily, some of us may not readily be able to make these connections. I've only recently been able to make this connection that I'm going to tell you. Because I've been allowing myself to be watered down, I no longer have the passion to write in the way that I was writing when I was in Atlanta. I don't know that the passion is gone, but I've allowed that to be dulled, right? You know how a knife that's not used for a long time can become dull? It's like that. So that passion has been dulled by my environment and my own flaws. When you allow your passions to be dulled by your environment and your access to people, the work doesn't get done. And when the work doesn't get done, you don't feel like yourself. Now, I'm only speaking to those of us where the work and our identities are very closely related. I I had stopped feeling confidence in myself because there was a part of me that knew Tiffany does X and you're not doing X. And therefore, you ain't Tiffany. So all the things Tiffany might be proud of, you can't really claim that because you're not acting like Tiffany right now. Somebody needs to be reminded that you have to re-embrace passions so that you can re-embrace the confidence that comes from those passions. Like right now, you may feel like the imposter, but that's probably only because you've let your situation, I'll say that word, you've let your situation distract you from the work that brings the confidence. When I am working with traditional educational models, when I'm writing about black spirituality, when I'm writing about the tenacity of black culture, I could write all day. And it'd be good stuff, too. Sometimes I look at my old stuff and I'm like, wow, who is that? But that's what's happened. My passion has been dulled. And I allowed it to be dulled. Let me say this also in case somebody needs to hear it. I allowed it to be dulled. Because it was more comfortable to be dulled than it was to face the reality of my flaws. I'm just going to leave that there. I'm going to leave all this here (laughs) for whomever needs it. I'm going to say I was in an environment for the first time in a very long time where passions were reignited. And I feel more like myself. And I want to sit down and write. And I want to interview priests and paleros and conjure. I'm, I'm, so if y'all know some, send me some information. Now I want the real deal. Don't send me no internet personalities. I'm talking about, I mean, they can be on the internet, but I'm saying I want the real deal who've been through some things. All right. Who, who, who doesn't mind having blood caked up under their nails. Okay. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to talk about that. You, we got to find our people, whoever our people are, we got to find them because this kind of work, I'm talking about work that saves communities and protects culture. That kind of work is not done in isolation. It can't be. It's not an isolated work. It's a people work. And so you, we got to find our people and don't use that word tribes. Y'all know how I feel about that. Those are ethnic groups. 
So find your ethnic group, if you want to call it that. We, we don't find tribes, honey. Find your people. Yeah. I hope y'all have a beautiful, beautiful rest of the day. Tell them to tell you.